podcast. Uh, we're here on November 30th, 2023 with Philippe and Inez. Uh, Philippe just published a uh, article uh, on his Substack, uh, which you should subscribe to and read uh, called the Zionist dilemma. Uh, I mean, I am also, we are both, you know, uh, both simultaneously fascinated by this conflict. So a conflict. So I have one earlier this week called Israel must crush Palestinian hopes. Which is a uh, you know sort of takes a different <laughs> a different theme, um, and so yeah, I mean we've been doing a lot of you know Isra- Israeli and Palestinian content, and maybe we should at some point reflect on why we we like this co- we like thinking about this conflict so much because it's you know it's an interesting question. There's only 15 million people or so or so uh, in all of Israel and all of the Palestinian territories. Uh, but that's probably a conversation for a, a different day. Um, yeah, uh, Philippe. Um, What's, what is the Zionist dilemma? So what I do in the piece is uh, I consider this alternative history in which Zionism emerged as a political movement about one century earlier. And I argue that if this had happened, then everything would have been easier and even better, not just for the Israeli, that much seems obvious, but even for the Palestinians. And the reason is that, uh, you know, the, in a way, the problem for Zionism is that by the time it emerged and met conditions favorable to its success, at least partial success, with the British mandate, uh, it, it, it kind of like arrived too late because colonialism by then was already getting out of fashion and like moral norms had evolved that made it harder to do the kind of thing that uh, the Zionists needed to do in Palestine. So what I'm thinking is that, what I'm arguing is that if, if you know, if somehow they'd been able to create you know, to Im- Im- immigrate to Palestine much earlier and create a state, say, in the mid-19th century instead of the mid-20th century, they would have been able first to expel the Arab population of Palestine much more thoroughly uh, because they wouldn't have been constrained as much by, you know, changing norms, international pressure, etc. And moreover, those Arabs expelled from Palestine, they wouldn't have had uh, the beginnings, at least, of a national consciousness, because nationalism back then had not yet uh, reached the Arab masses, uh, whereas by the time Zionism actually started to to make serious gains in Palestine, this had already started. And so what this means is that those Arabs that, uh, that would have been expelled from Palestine, not only would have been, they, they would have been expelled in much greater numbers, at least as a share of the population, but uh, they also wouldn't have had like any kind of like even their elites wouldn't have had like any kind of like Palestinian national consciousness by the time they'd been expelled, which means that they would have spent decades in neighboring uh, Arab countries, but instead of like developing a, a, a near identist political movement, they would have remained for several decades largely illiterate uh, Arab masses, and then they would have gone through a nationalization process much later in whatever states they happen to live. So they would have become Syrians, Egyptians, etc., instead of becoming Palestinians. And so what I'm arguing is that, like, one of the big things that makes the conflict so difficult is precisely that this did not happen, that the Palestinians did become Palestinians, and they developed this irredentist political movement. And because the norms, international norms... And, you know, I've, I've changed and I've become like more uh, tolerant toward the kind of like 
things that uh, states used to do in the 19th century, such as like massive ethnic cleansing, uh, you know, a lot of murder, etc. You know, on a very very massive scale, uh, etc. And the fact that there is this uh, irredent- Palestinian irredentism, you know, and, and Israel doesn't have like a clear way of uh, the, you know, it just can't get rid of the Palestinians at this point. Like they they just here they exist, can't genocide them, can't really ethnically cleanse them either, uh, as much as he'd like to. So, you know, what I'm saying is that what I call the Zionist dilemma is that what I'm arguing is that the fact that this didn't happen, uh, resulting in that, in that because it didn't happen that way, because Zionism in a way arrived too late, it means that there was this uh, Palestinian problem that was created, which in turn, I think, uh, was largely responsible for the fact that uh, the Arab populations in neighboring states don't regard uh, Israel as legitimate. And, and what this means is that, uh, it, you know, this hostility of the surrounding Arabs toward Israel, combined with Judaism's history of persecution, I think it created psychological dispositions in the uh, Jews of Israel that have only compounded the problem. So what I mean specifically by this is that uh, it has made the uh, Zionists extremely uh, risk-averse, and it has made them develop a, a conception of a very aggressive conception of deterrence. The idea that they need to the only way to secure their rights and their existence is to use overwhelming military force against any threats. And so, and this started very early on. Not in the article, for instance, in the 50s, during the border wars, after the armistice, they would do those massive retaliatory raids, which would be completely disproportionate. And, and this was a conscious choice because they thought they saw that and this is understandable, you know, that's the point I'm making in the when, thing when is that country when you're surrounded by people who hate you like this. When has a country ever fought back proportionately? When has a stronger country been attacked? It was the U.S. proportionate. Was the response to Pearl Harbor proportionate? Was the response to 9-11 proportionate? A stronger side never fights proportionately. I, I don't see the evidence that Israel has been particularly bad in this regard. If anything, I would argue the opposite, given the power disparity between the two sides. I mean... I mean, like, we're not talking, I'm not talking about uh, October 7th here. Like, I'm talking about, if you're talking about the 1950s, we're talking about, like, Palestinian fedayeen uh, doing small-scale raids, which, you know, are, is something that can be understood in their circumstance. They had just been expelled from their lands. They could see other people, uh, people this was foreigners, uh, living on their lands that where they used to live, like, a few years ago. And so they do small-scale raids, they kill, like, two Israelis, and then Israelis uh, invade the, you know, do those massive raids, say, in a Gaza bank, like one I mentioned in the article, which is a famous one from this period in which Ariel Sharon was heavily involved, he was the commander of the Israeli troops, where they massacre 69, um, 69 uh, Palestinian villagers in this one village. Uh, you know, like, you don't... Yeah. 
I don't think it's true that uh, I don't think it's true that any state would have reacted this way. But again, that's the thing. My point. This is important. You know, just just because I think it's important. My point is not. It's not as if like there is something. It's not as if there was something like unique to their, um, or at least that's not the only explanation. Unique to the psychology that made them react in that way. What I'm arguing in the piece is that this is a natural reaction when you're when a you come from a people that has been persecuted for as long as the uh, as the Jews had uh, in the diaspora, and two, uh, you're surrounded by millions of people, far more people than you are, who really hate you. It it makes sense to react in that way. But but what I'm arguing in the article is that even though it makes sense, even though from a psychological point of view, it's a natural reaction when you take into account those circumstances. It made the problem worse. Yeah. So that's that's what I call the Zionist dilemma. And the Zionist dilemma is the fact that to to solve their to solve their uh, the conflict and to ensure in the long term the security of their states, um, they would have to overcome those psychological tendencies. Even though those psychological tendencies are very natural reactions to their circum to their historical circumstances. Let me, and that's what I call the Zionist dilemma. Yeah, I could argue with some of that, but let, let, I want to actually address your sort of your bigger and your first point uh, that you made, um, which is the idea that this was sort of the Palestinian reaction to Israel was, you know, the result of being in the 20th century and uh, nationalism, you know, and all that. And it, it, it all that almost makes it sound like that any. I think that like this makes it seem like a typical sort of conflict, but it's a very atypical conflict. I mean, Palestinians, you know, living as refugees, one uh, generation after other, thinking about being expelled, harping on it. There were uh, there were Christians in the Middle East. Um, they were they have left not only uh, Israel, uh, but have you know declined in Lebanon and declined in other places. They did not you know they did not adopt any kind of uh, you know they moved on. I mean, they just moved on. A lot of people have just moved on. Uh, right. Um, and so I, you know, I think, you know, I, I think this is a unique scenario, which is a couple of things. It's Islam, um, always been Islam, even though, you know, it was more nationalist at the beginning. It's the Holy Land and it's the sort of institutionalization of this stuff at the UN. Uh, the, uh, the, just the UN's involvement and the international community's involvement in this. I think we've created a very unique scenario. I, I don't think this is like, you know, typical of like anything really almost anything else that's happened um in the 20th century to, to add to richard's point real quick um there, there's a, a few things missing i think one islam and and uh actually the the let's say starting in the 1970s the um rise of islamism in in the middle east is like completely missing from the account that you just gave and that you wrote in your Substack. um but but also uh, just what I would add briefly to Richard's point about uh, like why they're still uh, essentially stateless refugees for generation after generation. Um, it's not just as you wrote in your piece that they're they're part of this new nationalist idea and therefore this didn't die because they didn't want to assimilate. I mean that was a <clears throat> conscious choice by Arab nations as well. Like it was a conscious choice on the part of the Jordanians to keep them in, in refugee camps in that way, in part to try to, you know, because they, they were worried about the, the, their own power, right. The, the King of Jordan. Um, and, and in, in part because th this has been a useful issue for Arab states um, and, and for Arab governments in, in the region 
periodically to 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 get a kind of rally around the flag effect and that distracts from the their population's problems with their own government right um to attack israel now those conditions can change and i and the, the other uh like major problem i mean there i had several of as you can imagine with with what you wrote but uh, the centrality of of this palestinian conflict to because the, the premise of the, this gamble that you're asking israel to make right is that they'll essentially never have not even peace, but even stability with their Arab neighbors um, without resolving this conflict to, you know, some number of Palestinian satisfaction. Um, I would say that it, the, the events of the last, you know, several years have, have been in direct contradiction to that, that in fact, the centrality of this conflict and the way that you put it in the center of both causing the, the enmity and the hatred from Arab countries. I mean, to me, this is, First of all, just a historical. I mean, to go back like to the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, you know, uh, being very enthusiastic about Nazism, right? Um, I, I don't think that that's where that hatred started, but I think you overemphasize the centrality of this conflict, both to that hatred and ultimately uh, to the the necessity of of, of solving this conflict um, with uh, to to some kind of stability with with Israel's um, Arab neighbors. I would say. We've seen in the last few years in, in the Abraham Accords and now with the muted condemnation of this particular uh, war from places like Saudi Arabia, we're actually seeing the opposite. We're seeing that it may stop being convenient or at least be a lower priority for some of those those governments, Arab governments, to solve this problem as opposed to looking at other problems around the Middle East or looking at Iran or anything else. Okay, so there are several things here. Let me start by the end. You have the reached the end of the free recording for this episode of Clown Car. Uh, to listen to the rest the of the episode, please consider becoming a paid subscriber.